We uh, are talking for these weeks about transformation. Uh, we commented last week when we started this that uh, given how uh, the cultural climate and temperature has been lately, some might be mistaken to think uh, everything's awful, everything's bad, everything's tragic, it's all headed toward this precipitous fall and so on like that. And there are some serious things that need uh, attention. But the fact of the matter is God's on the throne. The fact of the matter is God is sovereign. The fact of the matter is that God is at work in powerful, life-changing, world-transforming kinds of ways. And I enumerated a number of things last week about that. I'm not going to repeat all that today. Uh, but what I wanted to say to you this time is that so much of that transformation is an inside job where God does something inside of people that works its way out. He does something inside a collective group, a community of people that works itself out. And I'm going to have to take you on a little bit of a journey to get to the unpacking of that point. And so you may have to work a little bit more today to uh, stay with me and for it all makes sense. So I've got a little piece here, a little piece there, and we're going to piece it all together. And I promise you it'll all make sense by the time we get to the end. So would you go there with me? All right? Uh, all right? I'm not convinced. Uh, in just a minute, we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians. So if you have a New Testament and you want to open that up, uh, we'll be looking at chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing to go through the Bible. And uh, we'll be talking about some of the readings that you had last week and some of the readings that you'll have this week in just a moment. Before we get to that, uh, I wanted to mention something to you about these girls, Lily and Jillian. They both live in Ontario. They are both 12 years of age. Uh, they are both from China, which may be obvious to you when you look at them. They both came from the same orphanage and were adopted out through the same adoption agency to parents in Ontario. Now, in that whole process, uh, these two sets of adopting parents uh, were in the same adoption class. And uh, there were six or seven other couples with them, and they all got photos, and they were getting ready to go to China and pick up their child and come back and so on. And, and uh, two of these couples began to look at one another's picture, and they thought, I think we have the same child. Do you suppose that they have miscounted and they've, they've gotten this wrong? And come to find out it was two different children, and come to find out once they got back to the States and did a DNA check, they're identical twins. It's a very unusual circumstance and situation uh, that identical twins would be being raised separately by two different families, and they're about three hours apart, so they have relationship with one another. They get to see one another every now and then. Uh, they do a lot of texting and emailing, things like that, sleepovers and what have you, but basically they're growing up in different families and different systems and different experiences and so on like that. I say all that to say this. Their lives are being shaped in a very unique kind of way. Your life was shaped in a very unique kind of way. It raises the questions, 
when you were uh, growing up in your family of origin and then getting into the formative years and adolescent years, etc., were you loved well? Was there words and um, affectionate touches that conveyed that love? Was there encouragement or not so much? Was there kind of an envisioning for your life that said you can be this, you can become this, you can do these things? Or not so much? Were there some accomplishments that happened along the way that basically said you can get something done? Or not so much? All these things impact us and shape us. And... We're even shaped down to the genetic level. Now, take these twins. Growing up different homes, different families. One has two other siblings. One is an only child. You can imagine the socialization that's going on there differently. One's being raised in a Catholic family. Another's being raised in a Presbyterian family. One's being uh, in a private school. The other's in a public school. But with all those differences, here's what they discovered along the way. They both began to crawl at the same time and did so on their hands and their toes with their bum up in the air. Kind of a unique crawl. They both began to walk on the same day. They both began to talk and say words at the same time. They both uh, love to draw and to color they both are big time into Taylor Swift with Taylor Swift stuff all over their walls. They have literally gone out shopping with their separate respective families, come home at night and texted or, or emailed one another only to find out that they had bought the very same outfit in separate whole shopping experiences. And so there's all kinds of genetic stuff that is bringing a shape to their life, as well as a socialization, uh, an environmental impact that is shaping their life. Which kind of brings me to this story about Wes Moore. You say, which one of those guys is Wes Moore? They both are. And the one holding his daughter is a Wes Moore who uh, is in prison. And the one who is in the suit standing outside of a prison is a, a writer who has written about their story. His book came out a couple of years ago called The Two Westmores, uh, A Tale of Two Different Fates, and uh, it became a bestseller. The writer grew up in Maryland, not too far from the prisoner who also grew up in Maryland. They're both African-American. They both came up in fatherless homes with a single mother. They both got into trouble uh, in their early years and both were in handcuffs by the age of 11. Never knew each other. Uh, growing up in the same type of area, same type of uh, home environment with, with very similar circumstances. But then something happened and they went in totally different trajectories. The Westmore, the writer, was getting into so much trouble, his mother somehow pooled the money, uh, called in help from family members and so on, and sent him to Pennsylvania to a military school. 
The other Westmore continued to get into trouble, got into drugs, began to earn, you know, like $4,000 a week selling drugs, got into one uh, jail situation after another. A uh, robbery that went bad in the year 2000 ended up uh, with he and his brother shooting and killing a Baltimore cop, and he is now in prison for life without parole. The Westmore, the writer, ended up graduating from that military academy, then graduated from Johns Hopkins with honors, became a Rhodes Scholar, became uh, an administrative assistant to Condoleezza Rice, and spoke at the 2008 Democratic Convention, and is now published a bestseller. When his life began to take on some celebrity and be noticed in the Maryland area because of his accomplishments, he was the first African-American to be a Rhodes Scholar from Maryland, um, all of a sudden uh, he discovered that there was another Westmore because of the crime and the notoriety the other Westmore had gotten. He contacted the one in jail. They began to correspond. They began to meet, and they began to share their story with one another. And Westmore, the writer, began to write it all down and made a book out of it. Now, here's the point with that. Their environment, their socialization brought shaping to their life that took them in totally different directions. Are you getting it already how important the shaping of a life is? The genetic shaping, the environment sh shaping, the socialization kinds of shaping, the, the things that happen with opportunities, people in your life that speak into your life in whichever direction. All these things matter. Now, what we're talking about today is how God is changing the world and he's doing that a life at a time, and then a community at a time, and a city at a time, and a country at a time. And that transformation happens by him shaping lives. And because God is holistic and comprehensive, he uses everything. He uses all the genetic stuff. He uses all the socialization kind of stuff. But he especially uses the inside stuff, the spirit the generating of a new kind of life within us. And that makes an eternity's worth of difference. Now, our case study has been for the, uh, these last couple of weeks a guy by the name of Paul. And we found out last week in Acts chapter 9 how God blindsided him. Here was this devout, Pharisaic Jew who was very religious, very devout, very passionate about what he thought was the purposes of God and the kingdom of God and so on, only to find himself on the wrong side. And so God uh, came up on his blind side, blinded him, began to speak into his life, called him to salvation, called him to serve him. And uh, a guy by the name of Ananias came along later by God's prompting and prayed for Paul. Paul got his eyesight back and immediately he began to share the gospel around Damascus, which was a huge, great city in its day. He had gone to Damascus to persecute and arrest Christians, take them back to Jerusalem. And instead, he becomes a Christian and becomes one of the persecuted. So after he is converted and God begins to do something on the inside of him, he begins to share the gospel. He begins to talk about how the hope of a life is Jesus. 
and many uh, become believers, but many become infuriated. And so he also uh, comes under persecution, and he flees Damascus, and he goes to Arabia. Now, we don't know where in Arabia. We don't know exactly how long in Arabia. Apparently, it was years. And we don't know exactly what he was doing in Arabia. But by the time Paul is back on the scene, there is a depth to his life with respect to knowing Christ and being shaped by Christ that is remarkable. So he comes back from Arabia, returns to Damascus. He continues to do ministry there. Uh, explosive things are happening with respect to the gospel and people coming to Christ and their lives beginning to be changed and turned inside out and upside down and so on like that. But the uh, oppression began to be so great, there literally was a movement to kill Paul. And some of the brothers uh, got him in a basket, pushed him out a window, let him down outside of the wall of the city, and he was able to escape. He went to Jerusalem. Uh, he met up with Peter and a couple of other believers. He begins to share the gospel in Jerusalem. People begin to come to faith. It's an exciting thing all over again. But the opposition, again, rises to such a pitch, he has to flee Jerusalem for his life. He ends up going to Caesarea, then he catches a boat, and he goes on up to Tarsus where he had come from. And there he's in Tarsus for three years. And we're told... He's, again, sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, seeing their lives change, a community of faith being birthed and developed, and so on. Now, at this time, there's also something remarkable going on in another area of Syria. Damascus is in Syria. A little bit further over toward the coast is a place called Antioch. And there in Antioch, uh, the movement of Christ is just exploding. The number of followers, the way their lives are being changed, the way they're impacting that community and changing that city is remarkable. And it gets the notice of all the apostles in Jerusalem. They go, we better do something to help that, to support that. And so they commission a guy named Barnabas to go up to Antioch. Barnabas goes up to Antioch. He sees how great the work is, how fantastic it is. And he goes, you know who we need to help us with this? We need Paul. And so he hops a boat. He goes over to Tarsus. He tells Paul all about what's going on in Antioch. He brings Paul back to Antioch. And there Paul and Barnabas have this tremendous, powerful, exciting, transforming thing go on in Antioch. And that launches us into a lot of narrative that you have been reading about and you will read about. Uh, with Paul and Barnabas, who become this like team for the things that God is doing. Now, by the time you get to chapter 13, Antioch has had so much go on in their lives from God, they're like, we can't contain this. We can't keep this here. We have to share this beyond ourselves. And we need to do it in the best way possible. Let us send the best from among us out to share the gospel in areas that haven't heard about Christ yet. And so they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, commission them, and send them off to leave Antioch and to go around the known world. And uh, thus we have what we call missionary journeys. Paul ends up doing three of these. And uh, again, you have been, you will be reading about these. The first one, as you can see, he takes off from Antioch. He goes over to Cyprus. He's there in a couple of cities. And then he goes over to the mainland, ends up in uh, Lycia, and then goes up to Pisidia. There's another city called Antioch there. If you're reading that going, I am getting confused. There's two Antiochs. 
So he's in Pisidian Antioch for a while, and he goes on over to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and makes his way back to Perga, and so on he goes. Finally gets back in to uh, Antioch. And as the story continues in chapter 14, they report, Paul and Barnabas report to the church in Antioch, the church that sent them out, to tell them all that God did on that missionary journey. All the people that came to faith, all the churches that got birthed. And they said, uh, from there they sailed to Antioch, and when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Exciting, right? It's a thrill. God's doing stuff. But then you get to the very next verse in chapter 15. Meanwhile, dun, 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 dun. while they have been gone, there's been some guys come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And they've begun to speak, preach, teach all the believers and basically say, you've almost got it right. But here's the piece you're missing. In order to fully follow Jesus, you have to become a Jew first. And you have to take on all of the law of Moses first before you can follow Jesus. So we're told in verses 1 and 2, Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, and unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, notice the minimization of language here, after Paul and Barnabas had no small debate with them, I'm going to tell you that was a debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. That gets us into chapter 15. And you, you should have just done that in the last day or two. Chapter 15, friends, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. So if you've missed it, go back to it. Because at this point... The clarifying and the defining of what it means to be a Christ follower is established. Because in chapter 15, we have the story of an ecumenical council, if you will, coming together. Gentile believers, Jewish believers, all believers in Jesus, coming together to say, how is it someone can become a Christian? Do they, in fact have to be circumcised, go through all kinds of rituals, practice all kinds of laws and so on like that, like a Jew, in order to become a follower of Christ. After a lot of debate, a lot of back and forth, they finally came out of a conclusion and said, no, we will not be imposing the whole Judaistic system upon Gentiles in order for them to come to Christ. The Gospel doesn't require it. And so at that point... Uh, great clarity was brought to the whole Jesus movement. Okay, that's a lot of technical, historical bits and pieces all, all over the place. You still with me, please? Okay. So uh, this takes them into a second missionary journey that actually Paul parts with Barnabas at this point. He takes some other partners with him. And as you can see, they go to all kinds of cities but one of the cities that they end up in is uh, Thessalonica. 
Now, a lot of those cities may have a, a, a ring of familiarity to you because later he will end up writing letters back to churches that are in these cities. And those letters typically have the name of that city in it. I highlight Thessalonica because that's one of the readings that we're going to do this morning. Paul had a very painful experience in Philippi. Church got started there. He also got incarcerated, but he miraculously got out of jail. And he makes his way over to Thessalonica, and a wonderful work of God happens in Thessalonica. A wonderful church gets established there. He continues on, finishes that second missionary journey. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So now we want to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I put on there too, but we're going to read from chapter 4. Um, now, the thing that you want to cap capture here is that Paul's correspondence, this letter, is written sometime later from his trip. So he's already been to Thessalonica. He's already helped get a church started. Uh, some things are already going on there that he can affirm and bless. He's just like, this is great. God's really doing some stuff there. And then when we get to chapter 4, verse 3, he begins to give them some instructions. He, he's been affirming them. Keep on keeping on. It's been awesome what God's been doing there. Chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Okay, uh, keep that open because we're going to keep reading. What Paul will continue to talk about over those next chapter and a half, those verses in the next chapter and a half, is what that sanctification looks like. Now, here's the thing that you would have seen if we'd taken the time to read in chapter 2. Paul affirmed them, we brought the Word of God to you. And you didn't receive it like a word from man. You received it like the Word of God. Therefore, sanctify yourselves in these ways, he says. And he gives a whole long list. Uh, and there it is in summation. Now, here's what you really have to be careful about, because you're going to read this not only in the Thessalonian correspondence, but the Corinthian correspondence and the Galatians and so on like that. You look at these lists of things that fall into the realm of morality. And if you're not careful, you can conclude Paul is addressing the external over and over and over again. He's talking about an external shaping of life. And friend, it's just the opposite. When he starts talking about all these things, 
he recognizes that they cannot be sufficiently addressed externally by just uh, white-knuckling and behavior and things like that. They have to be addressed internally where God is doing a transforming thing of you inside. So that's why he affirmed them in chapter 2. You've taken the Word. You didn't take it as a word from man. You took it as a word from God, which means they internalized it. That's exactly what Paul had done himself after he left Damascus. He went to Arabia. He's there for however long. He ends up spending however many years in Tarsus. All those years was internalization, internalization, internalization of the person of Christ, the will of Christ, the ways of Christ, the word of Christ. His transformation is from the inside out, and he's working that same kind of way in all the churches that he's establishing. And the Thessalonians is a great study of how that was happening effectively. So he tells them, you've got to abstain from sexual immorality. You've got to uh, continue to exercise brotherly love. You've got to learn how to live quietly, minding your own business. Quit putting your nose in other people's business. You've got to work and earn what you need. You've got to honor those who lead you. You've got to encourage the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak. Uh, constantly rejoice in the Lord. Constantly pray. Constantly give thanks. And by the way, test everything that comes your way as to whether it's of the Lord or not. Now, that's internal stuff, not external. And I, I'm, I'm harping on that a little bit because, friends, our churches around the world are filled with people who are trying to work the Christian life externally. And this is about knowing Christ and experiencing Christ and leaning into Christ in ways that He does an internal transforming of who you are. I'm going to illustrate that in just a minute. But let me show you what he ended up saying about the Thessalonians after he had given them uh, all these instructions. He writes a second letter to them. And in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, he says, We ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. In other words, he said, everywhere we go in these successive missionary journeys, every city, every new church, every group of believers, we talk about you. And how God is working in you and changing and transforming your lives. Now, let me illustrate this. We have been... Uh, talking a whole lot over the last few days in the public media news about General Petraeus. And let me hasten to say, I've got absolutely nothing to comment about this politically. Okay? So if that's where you already are, flip the page. And I really have nothing to say about this critically. Okay? Let's just talk about Petraeus for a moment. How has his life been shaped. Here's a guy who goes to the uh, military academy, distinguishes himself academically and intellectually, graduates in the top 5%, and gets the top graduate award. Distinguishes himself physically. He was in the top percentage of physically fit cadets at the military academy. 
he gets out, he continues his uh, studies at uh, Princeton, he gets a master's, he gets a, a doctorate. He uh, serves his country in a variety of uh, positions around the world, ultimately rising in rank until he's a general, oversees the war in Iraq, oversees the war in Afghanistan, totally rewrites military policy about dealing with terrorism. Everyone calls him a genius. Everyone remarks about how exemplary he is because of the discipline he imposes upon his life, professionally, uh, personally, intellectually, physically. Are you getting that external picture? You are looking at the embodiment of a guy that is thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly shaped externally. And it's a pretty good-looking picture. Here's a guy who's on top of it. He's a rising star. People are saying he'd be a presidential candidate sometime in the future, etc., etc., etc. And uh, somewhere along the way, he retires from the military, takes the directorship of the CIA. A biography gets written about his life. He ends up having an affair with the woman who is the biographer. It becomes public. He immediately resigns. Okay. You say, how? Can, and his, his marriage, I think, was like 34 or 38 years. I forget the number. But 30-something years. How does a guy have that happen? And again, I'm not being critical. Because I, the Lord knows. We could talk about all kinds of people in the church that this very thing has happened to. Church leaders, pastors, clergy, priests, all kinds of awful stuff that goes on. So I'm not casting stones at all. I'm just asking us to reflect for a moment on how this happens. Because somebody that lives the life that this general has lived does so um, with a great price. You can't get that, to that level of leadership and not have a, a significant measure of loneliness, isolation. Buck stops with you on a whole lot of things. Lives are in your hands. You're making decisions where people are in harm's way and can die. Okay? Um, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. So how do you deal with those things? Well, you better be disciplined. You better uh, discipline your mind, discipline your body, uh, all the things that he did. But friend, the piece that was missing that I hope is obvious to you at this point is that there was not an internal transforming kind of thing I'm looking for my little article. Here it is. So, I want to share with you this commentary that happened on Meet, Meet the Press last week. Um, and everybody's been talking about it, and everybody's got opinions about this, that, and the other. But Doris Kearns Goodwin, who is an award-winning biographer, has written about a lot of presidents and a lot of leaders and so on like that, made this comment... I'll meet the press last week. And she's not the only one to make the comment. Many, 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 many people, if you're keeping up with the conversation at all, are, are making the same cultural opinion. She says this, I wish 
we could go back to the time when the private lives of our public figures were relevant only if they directly affected their public responsibilities. What would we have done if FDR had not been our leader because he had an affair with Lucy Mercer? Think of the productive years that Clinton could have had if the Monica Lewinsky thing hadn't derailed him. We've got to figure out a way that we can give a private sphere for our public leaders. We're not going to get the best people in public life if we don't do that. This thing is really sad. This man was a great general, a great leader, and for his career to come to an end because of a private matter that affects his family and him and evidently doesn't have any national security concerns, I don't know how you unravel it, but I wish we could. You been hearing that kind of commentary? I mean, this is a private, personal thing. Why make such a big deal about sexuality, which basically has anachronistic, out-of-date, out-of-touch notions that are based in religion from prior times, etc., etc.? When are we going to get, grow up? When are we going to become progressive? When are we going to get with it in today's world? And I just want to say that in light of what we're talking about with the scriptures, I could not disagree with her more. It's impossible for me to disagree with her more. And all those that com comment in similar fashion. Because here's what they don't get. When God is at work in this world to redeem a life and to transform that life, He's doing so in a way that reflects Himself. So that people can behold His glory. So that people can go, oh, there's God. That's what God's like. And have their heart drawn toward Him. And one of the primary ways that God has seen fit to glorify Himself and draw the attention of a world that needs him, one of the primary ways he's worked to do that is by the changed life. Where I once was this, but I came to Christ, and now I'm that. Okay? But not only that, God has seen fit to use a number of other things out of the human realm to draw attention to himself and his glory. And one of those is faithfulness trustworthiness, honesty, matters of character. And these things matter. So, for example, the Bible says over and over again, beginning to end, you want to know what it's like for God to have a relationship with a person? It is a whole lot like marriage. The Bible will say it over and over again, beginning to end. And the Bible will refer to His people being like His bride. And when we go astray, we're like being adulterous against Him. And the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So the marriage analogy is used over and over again. The point is this. When you enter into a relationship with God, it's a covenant relationship. We talked a whole lot about that. I'm not going to expound on it more today. It is a covenant relationship. Do you know what a marriage is? It's a covenant relationship. They're so similar. And God's premise is basically this. You see how faithful 
this man and this woman are to one another for a whole lifetime, how they'll sacrifice for one another, and they'll go through all kinds of things with each other for the sake of each other because of their love for one another. That's the way it is for you and me. I will be faithful to you. And I'm looking for you to be faithful to me. That, my friend, is why marriage is sacred. And that's why when marriage fails, it's tragic. And for those of you that have gone through a marriage failure, I'm not beating on you at all, okay? Don't miss the point. The point is this. When a marriage fails and it breaks that picture, it breaks that image of what God has with us, it is disillusioning and disorienting and distracting and destructive to a world that's trying to figure out who is God, what is God like, how do you rightly relate to Him. So the point with the Petraeus thing is not... When is this culture going to grow up and get with the times and, and quit making such a big deal about a little thing like sex? That's not what it's about. It's about character. It's about fidelity. It's about trustworthiness. It's about faithfulness. Listen, I want to be able to trust the men in this room with my wife. And you women want to be able to trust the other women here with your husband. See, we're, we're doing that on a community level with one another where we learn how to embrace one another and love one another well, but we do so in proper covenantal context. We have a different covenant with one another than we have with a spouse. And when any of that gets broken, when any of that gets ruptured, it's all to the dishonor of God. Not just ourselves, but to Him. That's why the Petraeus thing is a big deal. Now, they've, they've tried to address it from the military standpoint. Military has it in their code. It's not a religious thing at all, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's great. I'm glad the military has that. But there's something beyond the military and something bigger than that. And that's the point. Is Petraeus a Christian? I don't know. Everything I could read about him just says he's spiritual. And one of his uh, values is that people are spiritual. And so he constantly held it up to his men that you work hard, you're trustworthy, you're honest, you're faithful, uh, you have strong marriages, you have a, a spiritual experience in however religious way you want to work that out. So that was kind of his, his deal. So I don't, I don't know what it is for him. But let's bring it to us. And the reason I'm not critical of Petraeus, friends, is because what happened to Petraeus can happen to anybody in this room. Because even though God is at work to shape us externally, genetically, environmentally, socially, and so, and especially spiritually, internally, even though He's at work shaping us, Paul got this, and we'll get to it in Romans chapter 7, when he said... I still have those times where I know what's right and I don't want to do what's right. And I have those times where I don't want to do wrong, but I end up doing wrong anyway. And that is part of the sanctifying process that continues in us until the day we die. 
Now, I'll never forget, some of you were there with me. Uh, I think I was uh, mid to late 30s, so several years ago. But we had a men's retreat. And we had a guy, I think he was 63 or 65 or something like that, come in and speak to us at the men's retreat. Godly man, uh, been involved in navigators. Uh, We had a very special time. But in one session, that guy stood there and told us men, as a 63 or 65-year-old guy, he says, uh, men, I still battle temptation and lust. And so what we're talking about today, don't make the mistake that I made thinking that eventually you graduate from struggling with those things. Because I'm here to tell you today I still struggle with it. And whenever it is that you don't struggle with it, it's still out beyond me because I'm still struggling with it today. I cannot tell you how disheartening that was to me. (laughs) And several of the guys later were like, man, I was hoping, you know, you just kind of hit 40 and everything, you know, changes. The point in all that, friends, is this. God's changing the world. He's transforming lives. He's doing that primarily internally, inside out. But it is a lifetime process until you no longer breathe and you check out and to go into the next world. And I've focused a whole lot on the whole sexuality thing just because of what's been in the news lately. But it goes across the board. He's looking to transform you so that you're no longer greedy, but you're generous. So you're no longer selfish, but, but you're giving. Uh, it's not all about you. It's about others. You learn to care. You learn to have compassion. You develop patience. There's a kindness thing that begins to just be saturating and, and, and exuding from you. And these aren't white-knuckling, I'm going to make myself be kind kinds of things. This is transformation so that it becomes who you are. But it's something that has to have constant attention. You have to turn to Him, lean into Him all the time, 24-7, about this transforming work. So, friends, if we get to the point where we think, you know, I've followed Christ for a while. I'm pretty regular in church. I'm learning how to do some things. I know more Bible than I've ever known before. And we get sloppy, careless, or even fatigued in the maintenance of our soul. We are a David Petraeus or a King David or any other David you want to talk about. Just just a hair away. Okay? I want to pray for you about all that. Let's bow together. So, Father, for the friend in the house today that really hasn't even settled the faith issue, I pray for for him or for her today. That like Paul and like billions since then, um, they'd come to know you through Christ. I pray this would be a day of salvation. For others of us that have sought to follow Christ, I, I, I pray. Continue the good work that you have begun in us until its completion. Continue the good work in us. Continue to change us. Continue to transform us. Change our appetites. Change our aspirations. 
change our affections. We pray that you just form Christ in us. And we pray that to His glory. Amen.